0: I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. morning, everyone. I hope you're having a great week. Hey, today. I'm super stoked to bring to you my conversation that I have with Dr. Simon Marshall, who is a performance psychologist based out of San Diego, the co-director of Braveheart Coaching with his wife, Leslie Patterson, and co-author of their book, The Brave Athlete. Calm the down and rise to the occasion which is a hilarious and insightful look into the athlete's mind and how we can be our own worst enemies when it comes to the stories that we tell ourselves and him and leslie use both their professional training and their practical experience to help their athletes and us as we read our book understand where these thoughts come to and how we can use them to our advantage rather than disadvantage. And Simon and I talk a lot about that today. Now, I have incorporated all of the information that Simon and I have discussed in the links to his book and his website and studies in the show notes for today's podcast, so check them out if you're interested. He's super easy to find over at braveheartcoach.com. Before we move on though, I just want to let you know that we have got about four or five days left of registration for Monday's Matter. I've had a number of sign-ups, which is awesome. I have information on both Facebook and Instagram, a couple of Lives that I did, which are available for you to watch. It is an eight week fat loss program based on protein sparing modified fast, time restricted eating, in addition to that, uh, with the regular inclusion of diet breaks. So you get shopping lists, you get your opportunity to choose which level you come in at one, two, or three, depending on your rate of weight loss that you would desire and you get the opportunity to be part of such an awesome group of supportive people, which I really feel is one of the main aspects and most important aspects of this program. And I'm really excited with all the new meal ideas, with the lessons that we learned first time round. That being brought into the spring edition of Monday's Matter. So absolutely uh, click on the link in the show notes or on my Instagram or Facebook and find your way there. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation that I have with Dr. Simon Marshall. Morena Simon, how are you this morning? I'm
1: very well, Mickey. Lovely to see you. Uh, not quite in the flesh, but I can see a, I can see a video of you now, which is uh, the second best thing, I suppose, to being in person.
0: That is so true. And um, as we were talking about just before we jumped on air, you've been to New Zealand a few times, been even to my hometown, Dunedin.
1: Yes, we love, Danine, obviously my, my wife is Scottish, so the strong Scottish connections to New Zealand as well, but we, we you know, we, who doesn't love coming to New Zealand? I don't think I've met a single person who hasn't enjoyed coming to New Zealand. So uh, yeah, we hope to be there again sometime soon.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting because of course, being a native New Zealander, like you grow up, it's just where you're from, you know, and you think, well, New Zealand's so small, it's not very worldly, we're all mm. a, little bit, a little bit bogan. Why would anyone want to come to New Zealand? But of course, as you grow up, you realise that everyone's basically just banging on our front door, waiting to get in. And probably right now as well, you know, like given the state of the... uh,
1: Especially now, probably.
0: Yeah, the world and and where we're in. Um, But uh, yeah, Dunedin's great. New Zealand's great you're in San Diego. We are I San Diego,
1: which is uh, obviously Southern California, we're about 15 miles from the Mexico border, so mm-hmm. right in the far sort of uh, southwest corner of California. Oh,
0: only yeah, 15 yeah.
1: miles. Only 15 miles you've had when we do we bike ride quite a lot and you you get so close to the border that your phone switches over to Mexico, thinks you're in Mexico. I know oh it's quite goodness. funny.
0: It is. Ritz. Which means of course you could you know, that's actually perfect in case you ever have to, like, hightail it out of the States. That's
1: right. Not that far are. away from no, not not that safe far. haven. it's not that far. Mexico is such a beautiful country. We've got so many good friends uh, who are live. obviously is a big Mexican-American population here, but just friends who live in Mexico. It's just we love Mexico. Didn't know too much about it as Brits. You know, you, we don't. Mm, no. But to now we've uh, been spoiled with amazing Mexican food and, and uh, the people and the culture and the hospitality. And, yeah, we, we love Mexico.
0: Oh, that is awesome! And um, so, obviously, we've just passed down south the winter solstice, but summer solstice solstice for you. Um, pretty hot over there.
1: It is. Uh, it's getting warm, as you know, through climate change. Generally, California and the neighbouring states have are having you know unprecedented levels of heat. Um, we live about a mile from the ocean, so we get this marine layer that gives us a little bit up until about noon or one o'clock. So it just gives a little bit of shelter from the bright sun and the, the hot sun but it's been uh oh yeah like in the hundreds I don't know what it is. are you centigrade in New Zealand you are, aren't you centigrade? yeah yes yeah uh, 35 yeah. 37 it's been right. just brutal but but recently the last couple of days it's not been too bad so fingers crossed
0: yeah nice Simon there is so much that I could talk to you about and also as we discussed before I came on like part of the beauty of having a podcast is that I get to talk to experts like you, like have a legitimate reason to kind of go, do you want to come and have a chat to me? (laughs) Um, And I have to say, I absolutely loved your book, the brave athlete. And I think in part, because almost as soon as I started reading it, I'm like, Oh my gosh, how did Simon and Leslie get into my head and put down all of these thoughts onto their pages? You just understood the athlete psyche obviously so well. I mean, hello, you are a sports psychologist. You'd expect that you would sort of know it. And also, Leslie, being an endurance athlete herself, of course, now doing extera related stuff, it's not quite as long. Mm-hmm. You have that sort of insight and, and knowledge. So there's so much that I could ask you about. I do actually, though, want to start on your own podcast, extera Podcast. Mm-hmm. And I just recently listened to Uh, Your talk with Mike Riley, the voice of Iron Man. What an it's such a great conversation. Like
1: I know he's such an amazing guy. Uh, He's happens to be a friend of ours as well, and lives in San Diego. So we've known him for many years. He's so gracious with his time uh, with us. Uh, I I know he's with other people too. Um, And yeah, it was really fun. It's what it's nice, and you do this. You've done such a great job of this on your podcast. Is getting behind the stories. You know, getting into the stuff that is when you if you're a guest on a podcast or if you host one you know that you've got your little phrases and go-tos and you can sort of occasionally dare I say kind of tune out but your mouth is still going that kind of stuff you know but then when you have real conversations with people and you know when you're doing sort of It's not so much unscripted, but you're getting the real. So you forget that you're recording, and you're just having a conversation with friends, and that's where the real great stuff happens. And we were really gracious to have Mike do that uh, with us. So yeah, we we love his company.
0: Yeah, and and it really came across in your conversation with him because that's exactly how it felt. And also, when you listen to conversations like that, you feel like you're part of them, and in part because we are all part of that same sort of endurance community, right? And you guys were talking about the idea of how endurance sport is really kind of transformational and you notice it in the people that you sort of, you uh, your clients that you deal with and your athletes and that they come into the sport however they are but then over time you notice this sort of transformation and then they sort of blossom and they find things about themselves that they wouldn't have otherwise sort of experienced. Conversations like that are always, they resonate so much to you know us endurance athletes. I think.
1: I think they do too. Absolutely. And the longer that you go, meaning the longer your sport, the longer your discipline, endurance, the the, the, the sort of the, the more special that relationship becomes in a way. So for example, you know we deal with a lot of Ironman athletes, um, and they're quite different than people who do Olympic distance athletes. And then ultra runners are even one step beyond triathletes in the sense that. When you look at sort of certainly the, some of the epidemiology of the, the kinds of personalities that you get in these ultra endurance events, some of them are clearly using it as therapy. Uh, you know, you only got to look at the incidence of substance abuse and former addicts in ultra events. Ultra endurance events is quite um, encouraging, I would say, in the sense that they're using it therapeutically. And then It's also, um, it's such a special event because you spend so much time on your own and left alone with your own thoughts. And for many people, including me, that's such a scary proposition, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) To be left alone uh, for 10, 15, 17 hours uh, with just you and your head. Whilst scary, I think you can really sort of get some quite remarkable insights during that time about life, about it, sometimes it's like, oh my God, I never want to do this again. Uh, mm. But other times it's sort of, it's, and, and we're not often unplugged for that long uh, yeah. in society now. And so it's really a kind of a, quite a cool little test tube for looking at what the human, the, the sort of, you know, the, the modern brain does under those circumstances. So
0: yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, and it's probably more accessible than say an ayahuasca. Uh, ceremony as well (laughs) which would be the other alternative exactly Well, those ceremonies
1: including you know hallucinogenics in general are going to be probably coming a little bit more to the fore certainly in my field in psychotherapy and psychiatry and allied professions because of some of those breakthroughs but endurance exercises take some beating for learning about you and yourself and yeah so uh and in and in triathlon Especially people are, the overwhelming majority of people have had quite, I would say spiritual, um, you know, with a small s, uh, sort mm. of transformation, transformational experiences doing it. So something about the uniqueness of being on your own in mm. somewhat discomfort or in pain on yeah. your own with your own thoughts is kind of special.
0: Yeah. And in the way that you guys were describing sort of endurance athletes, you know, if I I was reflecting on the people that I know, so I'm in the endurance scene. Obviously, I'm a I'm a runner. I am a soon to be even more ultra runner than than what I might be now. Um, I've been a wannabe triathlete for many many years. I've signed up to Ironman and then like about a month later, just like got a refund. And I I'm like that was I. And then instead of thinking, gosh, I just lost you know five hundred dollars. I'm like, oh thank God, I just saved myself. Mm-hmm. Like you know, $8,000 or however much it was going to uh, no. cost. Yeah. But um, there's something that draws us to the sport and you were sort of describing something about this deficit model of happiness and how that related to endurance athletes and, and things like that. Do you want to, Kind of talk me through that here, Simon.
1: Yeah, sure. So the science of happiness, there is such a thing, believe it or not, the science of happiness um, has been, has really sort of gathered some momentum in the last two or three years. It's been around for some time through what's in, in the psychological field, it's called um, positive psychology, it's often referred to. It's got a bit of a bad reputation, positive psychology, for other reasons that aren't because of its academic uh, study, but more because of how often in popular culture it's been hijacked and you know uh, and taken in directions that aren't substantiated by data but the, but in general one of the theories of happiness in general is that in order to be happy and content if there's such a thing for the human brain content we can talk about that as well but happiness is you have had to be also unhappy because it's the discrepancy that helps us appreciate the when times are good if if only you ever have good times, if everything is at your disposal all the time, that you want Mm. for nothing. You have the resources to make anything be at your fingertips at any time, which might sound appealing, um, but we now know the studies show that that's far from the case, ranging from studying lottery winners to Mm. three years after a lottery win, their happiness resorts back to pre-win levels, a whole host of other sort of physical sort of traumas that happen with people. That make them sort of um, unhappy, and then how they find happiness again, there's something about the discrepancy. and so uh, and there are some sort of biological uh, reasons that we think might be just simply you know uh, an artifact of brain chemistry, about how different neurotransmitters circulate, how we build torrents to them, how we want more of them if we've had not much of them, and so on. Um, but either way, I think that endurance sport does provide a vehicle for that because many of us now, particularly in, in endurance sport, because it's still a, there's still a quite a fairly strong socioeconomic gradient in endurance sport. You know, it's mm-hmm. largely middle class and upper class people doing it. Uh, and, I, and I say that in a, with a sort of, I, I, I say it with a, with a caveat that they're expensive to enter, particularly triathlon. Mm. You're, you're paying 800 to 1,000 US dollars often for a big Ironman. This is, and then you're traveling and accommodation. Mm. This is no small undertaking. What, in, what is going through people's minds to pay so much money, to be in so much discomfort for so long? There must yeah. be something other going on. And so because many of us now are knowledge workers, we're using our heads to earn a living. Um, and we are... F- becoming increasingly removed from manual labor uh, maybe that we are craving that physical discomfort that used to come from our vocations or used to just to come through just having a hard life Mm. and so um, and there was a great article um, written by Brad Stolberg in Outside magazine about Mm. this uh, phenomenon he was summarizing some of the science on this as well Um, and it was really alluding to the fact that we're really, whilst it hurts during when you do it, it's the, and the thinking about it is kind of scary, that sort of excitement, scary. Am I, could I do it? Do I think I can? When you're doing it, it's often, it's rarely, oh my God, this is so amazing. Look, you know, it's like, <laughs> it hurts, right? And there's a, a yeah. and funny because we had some adventurers on our podcast and they talked about this adventuring or fun scale. I don't know if you've heard of this. It was phenomenal. So, so a lot of adventurers, uh, climbers, skiers, long distance skiers, expeditionary adventurers, there's apparently a scale that they've been used to measure sort of different levels of fun in different activities. And, and if I'm recalling correctly, like type, um, type is type one fun, type two fun, type three and type four, I believe. Hmm. Type, type, type one fun, Is uh, when it's um, you think about it's really enjoyable when you do it, and when when after you've done it, you look back and it's really enjoyable as well. That might be sort of Hmm. I don't know, going to a you know on camping or going to a theme park. I don't know something like that. Um, But isn't it? Type two fun is when it's really uncomfortable during it, uh, but afterwards, oh my god, it's sort of transformational. I want to do it again. This is where most endurance activity fits in. Yeah. And type three fun is when it's miserable doing it, and you look back and it's still miserable, and I never want to do it again. You know, you might have had a life-threatening something, something went wrong, or, and so the this argument be
0: fun like know, type three fun?
1: I know, <laughs> it's probably the fun is probably the wrong label there, but they, yeah, they call yeah, it this fun yeah. scale. But the type two yeah, yeah. experiences where not very nice during, but when mm. it's all done, oh my God, a sense of accomplishment. We need more of those experiences in our life because they're gradually being engineered out of our lives because we can, we, we can pay to take shortcuts. We can buy our way out of discomfort and so on. But there's something yeah nourishing about doing that.
0: That's well, interesting, Simon, because that does sit into that whole idea from evolutionary biology that you know we developed over time because we had these periods of being uncomfortable and being and from that we became more resilient and we were able to adapt to our environment and and the things kind of around us whereas now in everyday sort of life we're not at all uncomfortable you know like everything is set up to make us Uh as comfortable as possible and possibly yet that doesn't mean that everyone is going to want to jump on and do you know, an ultramarathon or a triathlon. So there is something else about the endurance sort of, I suppose, uh, population that, Means that they might seek out more of that, maybe than other people. Yeah, know. I think
1: so. I think so. I mean, there are there aren't actually that many studies done on endurance athletes, ultra endurance athletes, especially because the scientific literature defines endurance in quite sort of what if you're an endurance athlete, you think whether that is endurance. You know, you're out there for yeah. an hour and a half, surely. <laughs> um, but the ultra or extreme endurance, um, I think there certainly is something to that, but we just don't we just don't know have that we don't have that much data. We we know how something about the personality. Or temperament types of some, for example, long distance triathletes about attracts people who are generally a little bit more neurotic, a little bit more anxious and so Mm. on. There are some reasons why that is. And maybe the exercise helps us uh, cope with that a little bit more. There's some really interesting science now about how exercise in nature reduces Mm. rumination and worry because there's a part of our brain called the subgenial prefrontal cortex that really uh, clamps on, not literally, metaphorically speak, clamps on mm-hmm. to things that are the sort of our the, what they call our default mode network, the the place when we're not daydreaming, but we're just kind of we're t- we're ticking along, we're scanning. I'm not particularly focused. I'm just like and this part of our brain that grabs onto that if it thinks that that's something there, you've just you've you know you it's in your bubbled up to consciousness and. Um, we need to worry about that we need to think about that because it's problem it could be a problem for you so the subgenial prefrontal cortex like takes it away metaphorically speaking and then we go down mm-hmm. rabbit holes of analysis and overthinking and so on and there was a great paper in uh, nature that looked at how exercise in nature uh, and they control- it was a it was a randomized trial so they actually were able to compare it with the same uh, um, Activity prescription, but in an urban environment, and then mm. comparing then that with with an exos- um, with exercising indoors, and they mm. actually found that exercising in nature, and they did fMRI imaging of the brain, and mm. they found that activity of this uh, subgenual prefrontal cortex was greatly reduced only in the nature environment, and uh, symptoms of worry and rumination, and you know the lone sock in the dryer <laughs> tumbling over in our heads. Seems to be attenuated slightly under those circumstances. There's something to that. The, the, on a, on a side note, the whole science of why does exercise help us feel better mentally and emotionally has really gathered, made huge strides in the last sort of two or three years because of neuroscience, because mm. of now what's happening in the brain. And so it's really a fascinating time to be in that into that the, the, the sort of the juxtaposition of mental health and exercise. It's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, totally. And you know, I. Um and think of a number of kind of tangents that came into my head as you were talking about that Simon and, and the first one is the idea that and you know it's not just the idea the the, the truth and the fact that we exercise and we exercise long and it really helps calm our mind and I'm speaking from absolute um, personal experience mm-hmm. and then of course you do run the risk of overdoing it and then you know so for us you know when I talk to clients about stress management which is a large part of what i talk to my nutrition clients about Mm -hmm. because food is so tied up into Mm -hmm. sort of how we feel Mm -hmm. and our coping mechanisms and with a lot of athletes they're absolutely overdoing their exercise and under eating and you talk to them about stress management and their mode of stress management is to go out for a run or go out for the bike which could very well be the underlying cause of some of the other issues we're talking about you know so
1: Absolutely. I mean, certainly it's a contributing condition. When you, the, the science of stress management is also really fascinating. And so when you look at sort of the, and, and, and I'm not sure how, many of your, how much of your listeners are, are familiar with some of this work, but in general, having these two sort of um, ways that sh- the human brain deals with stress mm. is we've got these sort of emotion-focused um, strategies. Uh, so these are things that basically... They don't do anything to take the source of the stress away. They just help the filter that they either numb you to it. So alcohol is an emotion focused coping strategy. Mm. Um, Exercise can also be be that, but you're really changing the filter versus problem focused coping where you're actually doing things to reduce the source of the stress. I'm going to, well, if I'm no good at uh, doing X, I'm going to train and learn how to be better at X, or I'm going to work harder or work longer. So, but because emotion-focused coping is so attractive and easy and quick to do, and especially when it comes to, you know, one of the biggest, one of the quickest ways to reduce cortisol, right, is have simple carbohydrates quickly. Um, Of course, that's going to be a go-to strategy. And exercise, I think, fits into this bucket where it does, it can help with both, but when it gets into sort of, it becomes a bit more obsessive. My wife is a good, Leslie Patterson is a good example of this. And she talks openly about this, about the role of exercise dependency in in, in Mm -hmm. her life and how you manage that. And when you tip over the edge and it starts to also unglue you. But for most of us, finding that tightrope between enough to help with these sorts of problems I'm having or these sorts of issues, but not too much that I'm creating a whole new subset of issues um, is a real delicate one.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and on that, you know, I see and I'm, and I'm guilty of this myself in that if I can't run for an injury because I've got an injury and, and whatnot and, you know, who doesn't have an injury as a runner? Um, I then switch my mode to right. Well, if I can't do my two hour run, I'm going to go and do two hours on the exercise cycle. You know, and I actually what I find is that at the time when I decide that I feel immediately like I've got control of the situation. Cool. injuries out of my control but I can still control the training that I do. But then actually, if I give myself enough time, I sort of over the hours or maybe the, the uh, you know that might be sort of midday, one day, and then I'm going to do that session in the morning of the following day. By the time I actually get up to to the next day to then jump on an exocycle for two hours, for no good reason other than just to calm my mind, I've actually almost reached that conclusion myself that actually that was just a coping that this is not going to help me any further (laughs) by just pounding it out on an exocycle you know not not even for my brain because I'll just feel a bit tired and a bit irritable from it so but I think (sighs) as athletes we are we do or some of us can run that fine line between being just obsessive about it for no reason and that's just that is yeah quite challenging I suppose.
1: It is, but I think that when you look, you know, if you take an ancestral perspective on it, that the human brain is wired to try and avoid anxiety or or, Mm. or, or avoid being in disequilibrium. Right, there's something that's not right. I don't want to think this. I don't want to feel this. I want to be away from that. I want more of that, not this. And Mm. the human brain is remarkable at nudging you in the ribs, uh, with a with a sometimes really strongly, but. Sort of imprecisely. So we don't really know, but we just know that I don't, I want to feel different. And yeah, so yeah. we start grasping or doing things to make us feel different. And so no wonder that most of the things that the pop, certainly Western populations are, in so air quotes, addicted to work fairly quickly, uh, are very successful at making you feel something different. It's just that the mm-hmm. long term consequences are, we pay for, right? And it's interesting because even the science now has looked at, there are different. We talk about dopamine a lot, obviously, and dopamine is so misunderstood by Mm -hmm. many people. We always think of it just as simply the pleasure chemical, right, that we do something. But really dopamine is is under the score, the biology of wanting uh, and striving Mm -hmm. for and direction to. And I I do think that when we start to get... find ways to kind of hijack a dopamine pathway for water in a word, because there are multiple dopamine pathways in the brain. So one of them goes straight to our limbic system, which is where all emotions come from, mm. our feelings come from, as well as our, you know, the, the fight or flight response and the rest of it works very quickly, very much more incentive. The brain has a m- much higher incentive to choosing that pathway, the here and now pathway versus the, I'll do it later which is called a mesocortical um, dopamine pathway, as opposed to a mesolimbic uh, pathway. So, and this is behind the finding that, you know, there's a famous um, uh, study in behavioral economics, which is that if I offer somebody money now, I say, okay, Mickey, I'll give you $100 now, or I'll give you $200 a year from now, which would you choose? And most people choose $100 now, even though it's smaller than the amount, because I don't want to wait and the reason for that, we think, is because the dopamine pathways, when thinking about those two options, are quite different. One is going to the frontal cortex thinking, oh my God, this is good, I could, I'm going to get more money, I can use it to save. A health, exercise for health is, fits into a mesocortical pathway, right? I'm doing this because mm-hmm. I'm going to have better X, Y, Z, health outcomes, whatever. But the feel-good here and now that you get from you know um the jar of cashew butter at eight o'clock at night or whatever you know uh yeah, it's yeah. a much more intense experience and so we're gonna choose those quicker short term so it's a really unfair advantage that they those sorts of reward pathways have for us so we have to be sensitized to that and know when one is sort of winning out and what can we do to engineer it back
0: it's so interesting right because so i um so a couple of thoughts on that one is uh, one I would go for the $200 next year like <laughs> I, I'm very I'm very good at delayed gratification like but for this me, is I'm gr- like,
1: great yeah
0: well yeah but I've got to I've got to make sure that that's a, like a useful thing to have in sort of everything that I do right and I just there are things like if I think about me and entering races and I'm sure we'll discuss this in in a um in a short while but I need to be able to use that to the best of my advantage But I I see what you've just described all of the time with clients, you know, because this is not in the sport arena, but again, it's food and you didn't mention the cashew butter. It's like I constantly talk to them about this idea that, yes, that five minutes of pleasure as you're stuffing that spoon into your mouth and getting through that cashew butter, is that really going to be worth that? Sort of in half an hour, even though you shouldn't feel guilty, you will feel guilty, and you'll hate yourself, and you'll then think of some other punishing thing with which will either go through your mind or that you'll have to sort of execute in order to quote unquote make up for it. But um, you know, that's such an interesting thought experiment that $100 now versus $200 like in a year. And and it
1: applies to. I mean, you may have had. I think you even described this. You've entered a race that Mm. is basically the human brain. If something is six months away. You could talk most people into most things
0: dave right? goggins does it so well in his book when he's like everything seems like a good idea tuesday I afternoon in the sunshine i know, I know. <laughs> yeah.
1: because it's all mesocortical dopamine really um yes. you're thinking and oh my god this is what i need to get back on track i'm gonna enter this race we're gonna do this and then as the time gets closer and closer your limbic system is saying what the have you just done? This is, this is, are you crazy? You're going to get humiliated. You haven't done nearly enough. And then, so you sort of, there's some self-sabotage and then you pull out and this is the cycle that many athletes find themselves on. We, you know, we, we coach a lot of endurance athletes and this is a very, very common one. Um, so yeah, it's kind of brain biology, right? So it's, we can't necessarily uh, or it's probably unreasonable to expect to overturn and completely change. But it, we can start to be aware of things and say, you know what, I'm going to do this now, uh, but I'm going to put limits around it and when I can and how. And, and certainly for most people when that comes to food or alcohol or gambling or pornography, you know, choose the the, the, the emotion-focused coping thing of choice there. You, you can usually sort of use some strategies. And some of them come from the, I will say, from the diet. Um, uh, literature as well, like urge mm. surfing, is a great one that really comes yes. from disordered eating and eating disorder literature. So there are some strategies that we we can use to help at least flip that switch to from 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 limbic to cortical.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I and I do want to um, go into those um, some of those strategies as well because what you just described about entering a race, you know, being all up for it until about a month out and then either downgrading. I've done that multiple times. Um, or just pulling out before the event. I, again, done that multiple times. Like I'm very well known for it to the point that I'm, I'm you know, I've literally two days ago I entered the 100K for topor and it's an ultra marathon. And I was mm-hmm. up until two days ago going to enter 50K. And then I'm like, bugger it, I'm just going to enter the 100. I, and I tried to sort of have a word to myself and think, Mickey, why is this any different from last year when you thought you would do that? I talked myself into it because I'm like, well, I thought this has been a good idea for at least six weeks, you know? So I didn't just, but I just, I just sort of like hit the button for, um, for paying for it two days ago. But my biggest fear, Simon, and you go through sort of multiple characteristics of athletes, you Mm -hmm. know, what goes on in their head Mm -hmm. through your book. But my fear is of the actual event, not Mm -hmm. about, it's not a body image thing. It's not, am I going to come first or last or, you know, I'm not worried about how I place It's, is this event too big for me? You know, like, am I capable of doing it? And I have, I have the, I have self-confidence in, in a range of different kind of areas, but I, I, I'm, I don't know. I think I'm lacking that self-belief, you know, it's.
1: Yeah. And it, and it traps you, uh, you as, as well as, you know, 95, because it's not unique to you. I'm sure mm. you would appreciate that. Um, and it traps us in this awful cycle because one of the, biggest drivers, if not the biggest driver of self-belief or actually self-confidence um, uh, is success, right? Feeling as though that you've pulled something off. And if we are trapped in the cycle of, I want to, I'm going to, this is it. And then pulling out, you never get a chance to feel successful. And so self-belief and self, uh, self-confidence keeps at a, sort of a baseline level. So we need to start tricking ourselves to find big audacious goals that we somehow have said, well, so a strategy for that would be I've entered the 100, but I'll do 50. And then if, if I think I've had enough, I'll, that's my out point. And at the 50 point, I'll have all my stuff there that I can get away or get out. And I'm just going to get to the 50 and then but you get to 50 and the dopamine snowball keeps rolling. Oh, I just, I can do a little bit more. So this goes into the principle of segmenting any big Mm. goal, you segment it because again, we can microdose ourselves with dopamine because dopamine is the thing that's going to keep us persisting in the face of adversity. But also as any list maker or lover of lists will tell you, when you check something off a list, I've done that, I've got through that, you get a little feeling of accomplishment and feel goodness. And that's, largely dopamine. So mm. if we can do that with our activity as well, it really helps. So we have in our um, in our coaching, we talk about, we've got this, we call it the quarter quit rule. Easy, mm. hard to say if you've had a few pints, but the quarter quit rule. And this is simply suit up and commit to doing 25% of a session. Even if you yeah. have no, I just don't want to do it today of all things. If you're hungover, if you're whatever, I just can't be bothered suit up and do 25% and then turn around and come home and Mm. what actually happens you get to 25% and your brain biochemically is fundamentally changed at 25% through anything Mm. that it is from when it starts and so you've now got chemistry on your side, you've got momentum, chemical momentum literally about Mm. the different neurotransmitters that are flowing uh, and you want to continue often. Mm. and So, well, I've done quarter. Well, I'm halfway. Now, well, I might as well. keep. And, and you use that strategy. So I would say for 100K, is it 100K or 100 miles?
0: 100K, my God. Oh, God, oh God can I can't say. Like, I, I, even
1: I'd come over and slap you. What are you doing? Uh, 100K. So, you know, that is really for 25 25K events. Uh, yes. Or you need to break it down. And you only race... little mini segment that you're in and you and you don't just play lip service to that you give yourself a legitimate out at Mm -hmm. those and you might think that that flies in the fact well if I've got it if I make it easy it's like running laps if I have to run past my house every time it's so Mm -hmm. easy to but what we're trying to do here is not make it easier once you're doing it we're trying to make it easier to start and once you've made it easier to start and you get going You then have momentum, psychological momentum, biochemical momentum, and you make different decisions when you're already through something. And in fact, some of the best races that Leslie's had is when at the beginning, she's thought, if she'd have thought about the whole thing, oh, it's going to be a terrible day. I'm never going to do this. So just do, see if you can, and triathlon is especially, I'm just going to do the swim and the bike. I'm not going to do the run because I'm really, So I'm just going to do the swim. But leave your run shoes there just in case or just walk Mm. the first, just run out of transition so you get that experience. Well, I've done, I I might as well just keep going a bit more. So you can use that process to really help. So I would really think of, for your running, especially the longer stuff, break it up Mm -hmm. into smaller segments and only let yourself, have little game plans, have a little even strategies for only that segment. What would you like to run the first 25K in or even the first 10K in? What am I going to, I'm going to think about, I'm going to, uh, I play a song in my own head mm. uh, uh, for the first, and then the second segment, I'm gonna like do, you know, boys and girls' names A through Z and backwards. And then for mm. the third segment, I'm gonna think about, blah, 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 blah my vacation. But give yourself distinct mental game plans for each segment, and you'll find that your sensation, your perception of time changes, your mm. perception of, uh, oh my God, can I do this changes, and so on. Mm. It really helps.
0: Yeah, that's such a what you've, those strategies that you've just sort of outline for me like as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, okay, because I have like I love listening to podcasts. I love learning. Like mm-hmm. i mean who doesn't? I mean, well, okay. There are a lot of people who don't, but you know, a lot of people who listen to this will obviously right, be right, in our right. same camp, right? And so so I know I've got to pace him my mate Cam, he's gonna be there at seventy five K. So mm-hmm. I only really have to worry about that first seventy five. And right. in fact in my head I'm like, well I only have to worry about seventy five K and if I'm spending from 25 to 50k listening to rich roll podcast and a few nourish balance thrives that i'll save up then that's you know that's distracting myself from the fact that i'm at the same time completing that 100k race
1: exactly i mean that all works i mean you can the part of our brain that kicks in particularly for endurance sport because it's sort of a it's a closed motor skill right it's like mm. doing the same action over and over it's not golf or tennis or soccer it's like it's the same action over which is a wonderful opportunity to tune out parts of your brain Mm. that don't really need to be switched on or Mm -hmm. that's not they're always switched on but they don't have to be highly active um so yeah rhythmic uh, sort of closed motor skills lend themselves to almost this auto hypnotic state anyway and Mm. some athletes talk about it as flow states where you just kind of lose sense of time and place and it's just kind of ticking along and and but most people um, don't. Um, flow is a really interesting topic as an aside. But but what many people fail to appreciate is that they think flow or getting into that magical oh my god I'm just everything zoned out and it's just mm-hmm. is like a trampoline to a door like twenty feet in the air. I've just got to if I could just time it. But it's really you got to swim through a sewer to get to the mm. clean water. That's what flow actually is like. It's you. It's almost like. Um, you know, like airline turbulence, you know, it's coming, it's, it's bomb. Oh my God, but on the other side, smooth air. Oh my God, here we are. And you don't realize that you have to go through, maybe this is the deficit model again, right? You have mm. to go through misery to find the, the, the kind of the good parts and flow seems to be that way. And very few people, certainly the evidence, the empirical evidence suggests that you don't go from, you start and within a minute you're in this perfect sort of like trance, like, to uh, state, you have to often go through pretty grim times. So think of that as well when you're running. Like, oh my god, it, the worse it gets means the round the corner is something that's going to be incredible. Um, totally.
0: You know, and it's really interesting. Like as I was as you were talking, Simon, I did get a little bit distracted by what you said about the brain always being switched on. So very small question. Hopefully this won't take too much time. It is an absolute. See that we only use like 20% of our brain, right? I mean, that's yeah, yeah. rubbish.
1: Well, I, I live in America. It's probably true in America, but no, no, no. no. I sort of, I don't know. <laughs> people, Americans will hear this now. Um, yeah, it's absolutely nonsense. There's a couple myths, one of which is that we only use 10 or 20% of our brain. Absolutely yeah. nonsense that your yeah. left brain or right brain, absolutely nonsense. We use all of our brain most of the time. Yeah. Um, what is different, though, is the way that different either things in our environment or the things that we, our sensory system, both our extra senses, yeah. Eyes and ears, and interoceptive hunger, cramp coming on. You know all these other things that peak or ask us to shine a spotlight our perception of those sensations, and we go down rabbit holes. Mm. They're begging us, like, follow me, come with me. You, you know, you injured piece of what are you you doing? (laughs) And and it's begging us to follow it. And that is where athletes, and we're not just athletes, anybody generally Mm. gets into into trouble. So it's recognizing when you're being called away down a rabbit hole and knowing how to sort of put the gates in quickly. That's really what meditation training is, is designed to do, right? It's passive attention training, technically, you're saying, mm. I notice, but I don't focus on. I see yeah. you, but I'm not becoming, it's like a fire, I always use the analogy with athletes of a firework display, what we, the goal, the state that we're trying to get to with our internal state our thoughts and feelings particularly when they're unpleasant it's like a firework display Mm. one has come up and it's shocking and it's awful um but or terrifying or nerve-wracking uh but i just and it fades and then my attention is to the next one and i'm not really thinking about the explosion that i can't see anymore we'd like to get to that point but unfortunately because of Largely because of parts of our brain, you know, different parts of our brain, how they operate, particularly this subgenial prefrontal cortex that grabs onto, sorry, that grabs onto worry and takes it away and goes down a hole with it. We're trying to stop that. So mm. it's, really, it's a challenge, but it can be done. You can learn this, uh, how yeah, to do yeah. it effectively.
0: Well, you know, and another kind of athlete example, which is different from what I struggle with, is that I, I you know, have a friend and they enter multiple Ironman event, never finish them never like hasn't finished an Ironman in maybe seven years yet has entered multiple of these events and it's either and it's almost like a self-sabotage thing appears to go on like oh you know got a flat didn't have my tire or my power meter wasn't working or there's just there's something that that happens almost every time and I just really feel for them because it all of these multiple opportunities with which to prove to themselves that they can do it, they've sort of, it's not that they haven't taken the challenge, it's just something in their mind has blocked them from then sort of moving past that. And, you know, someone else who I was talking to about, our friend, they were like, you know, they're very caught up in this idea that they're this type of athlete, that they're a 313 runner and a 530 bike and a 57-minute swimmer, but they've never actually put it all together. So, but in their head, they are comparable to these other very successful athletes who always are out on the course in front of them. So it's almost like I'm not going to be as good as that person. So I'm just going to like, um, you know, something happens so they can never they can never prove that they're better or subsequently, of course, it's never seen mm. that they're worse
1: exactly so i mean this is the one of the the best examples of Mm. self-sabotage and many athletes don't think of it if you're in that position i've been in that i started as a as a cyclist and I remember and I've given this example now because I'm I, it's taken probably 30 years to be not embarrassed about it anymore <laughs> uh, in a race I let my own tires down uh, <laughs> I got dropped I was like 14 I got dropped from a criterium uh, yeah. and I was now there was no one on the backside and I let my time went rolled round to the pit lap and timed it so I didn't have to take a lap and and i never told anybody and i just are flattered you know what can you do and it really uh studying psychology now Mm. and studying and actually when i say that a lot of people have had similar experiences it might not be as like you know, outrageously embarrassing as that, but we've all got some element oh, yeah. when we, we find it things either aren't going well or I need it to be perfect. Unless it's perfect, it's not a good day. So everything has yeah. to be perfect. And, and we spend a lot of time telling our athletes, um, you don't have to feel good to have a good race. Mm. Some of Leslie's best races have been when she's felt worse the night before and terrible. it's going to be a terrible day. And so, but the self-sabotage thing is a fascinating one for me, mainly because I come from that background as a kid, mm. right? So, and I think a lot of the time it's what are we protecting and we're protecting ultimately it comes back to our ego with a small e, not in a strict, uh, how the sort of lay person interprets ego. So, so what's often happening with those sorts of experiences? And I'll segue that into another sort of a version of that where we don't not finish, but we just kind of walk. We we call it in, you know. We just mm. kind of walk it in, and we do it slow. But we've got all the reasons why that happened. Is because when you, if you think about it, when you, and it usually is athletes who have less self belief or lower self esteem, uh, sometimes low self confidence. But the the roots of the the, the tree trunk of our self judgment system is that when you lay everything on the line, so there's nothing that you couldn't have done differently. Everything is on the line and it still is not good enough. Mm. What does that say about you?
0: Oh, yeah. And, and for scary. many of us, it's
1: like the answer is, you know what it says? You don't have what it takes. Because yes. when everything is perfect, you're still not good enough. Yes. And that, for a lot of people, is for your limbic system, brain, that is trying to avoid humiliation, embarrassment, and inadequacy, the holy trinity of mm. brain bedshitting, right, <laughs> uh, is... If those things, there's a possibility that they could come true, I am going to, by hook or by crook, create a set of circumstances where I can explain away why those things happen. There's a whole area in psychology called attribution oh, theory, yeah. in fact, about the attributions, the reasons we give for, for outcomes. And working through those, um, and it's ultimately about our relationship with failure. So. Mm-hmm. At the heart of this is changing an athlete's relationship with failure to the mm. point where you don't just hope it doesn't happen, but you get to a point where you've trained yourself to will failure on. Come on, I want to know. And David mm. Goggins is like, you know, probably a oh. poster child of this to yes. a degree. But if you, if, you know, you have to kind of over tighten a screw to know how tight the screw can go. Mm. And so an athlete can get into that mindset of, I want to know what my limits are. Um. Then I'm going to have to experience failure, and yeah. so your changing relationship with failure is really important. Now, many athletes don't just like not. So some don't finish, and that's one version. But the other, far more I think, pernicious version is when athletes start as a competitor, meaning numbers on. I'm ready. I'm going to throw it down. I'm looking around. And I'm going to, and then something happens along the way where. For whatever reason, it's not my day. Uh, you, sw- you switch to a participant, not a competitor. Yes. So a competitor mindset versus a participant mindset. A participant mindset, is, uh, we've all known them. Sometimes it's been us, other times it's our friends. After well, I was just at the end of the day, I was just out for uh, fun. I'm just doing this for fun, you know. Uh, and I don't, I'm not knocking people doing exercise. That's not what we're saying. But the brain is wired for competition as well, mm. and so it's okay. To, to try and throw down and see what you've got. What's, what many people can't cope with is the consequences of what that says about you or the outcome. Oh, yeah. So changing into a, into a, or keep staying in a competitive mindset, no matter where you are, whether you're at the feather end or the pointy end of the arrow is really, really important.
0: It's interesting, Simon, like with that. So I'm thinking about being on a start line and with all these runners and runners are notorious for this is you like, Oh, you just hear someone go, oh, yeah, nah, I haven't been feeling great this week. Or or they do the thing of, oh, yeah, no, I haven't tapered for this event. You know, I'm just, just doing it. It's just my long run or whatever. Yet, yeah, that doesn't necessarily stop them from feeling disappointed at the end, but at least they've got an excuse that they haven't either met their expectations or, more importantly, others' expectations of them as an athlete, right? Like, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like um, I, I, there's this page called, oh, it's, the marathon, you know, people who fake running a marathon and or, they, you know, they get on a bus and they get off at f- 26 miles or whatnot. And there's this couple in that, can't remember what that page is called on Facebook. Um, maybe it's Marathon Exposé or something. Yes, the, the
1: guy or gal who, who hunts them down and yes. connects the dots. I know. There's a whole... and. Yes.
0: Un- and there's this Except- woman and her husband runs every race for her. He puts on her, they, once they accidentally swapped their numbers, then without realizing they both ran, she ended up coming first unbeknownst to her. And then, and then th- this is just what they did from here on in. And and then of course they were found out and the wife just said, you know, well, I just, you know, I didn't want people to think I wasn't a very good runner. And oh. then the husband was like, I didn't want to, I didn't want my wife to feel like, you know, as terrible as she felt about the runner she was. Like, it was just crazy.
1: Isn't it? That mindset you get caught up in. And in fact, not only that, but the reason websites or, or groups that hunt out cheats, we as athletes as, as, and as fans and spectators love to see the comeuppance oh. to cheats. It's, oh, yeah. that's, that's itself, I mean, the schadenfreude of it. Like we, the, the, the human brain, gets a little squirt of pleasure by seeing people get what they deserve, right? Yeah. This is why the whole YouTube fail videos are so successful. Oh. Watching bullies get their beat down, watching cheats get exposed. Our brains are wired to see people get knocked down a peg or two when they deserve it, not when they mm. don't deserve it. <laughs> the, 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 the part that you spoke about, uh, the reasons that you give on the start line, oh, I'm this, I haven't done that, and it's called negative self-handicapping. And what uh, and and so and we've all done it and it's mm. and it's you know it's also like protecting the outcome before and it's really frustrating to, to fellow competitors not just because it's annoying and yeah. it's just like not very you know it's not sports person like but it's also when that person actually outperforms or does really well what are, what's the rest of us left well they felt shit and they still. Yeah. Want. So what I yeah, said about me, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of the things in the in the in the changing relationship with failure, sort of uh, series of work that I do with athletes, who one of the things that you have to really get to is not ever mention anything that could be alert to what those reasons are. And try not only just try and not tell anybody if you're feeling bad or what went wrong, but mm. you actually train yourself to force things to go wrong and then still race so Leslie's a good example. so what Leslie started doing is in local races especially running races or match she's got a target on her back, regardless of you know everyone wants to you know take the scalp of my wife locally I mean international's been yeah, yeah, different, yeah. but uh, and so She's like, oh my god, I've got. I feel like I have to like taper for my local 10k, right? It's like ridiculous. And so, what you start to do, what she started to do was, if the race is a Saturday morning, is have a really, really hard week of training or design it so on the Friday, the day before, she's done this hellacious training day. She rocks up so fatigued, or in deliberate she has a set of kit that she wears, which is my sort of like grimy, crappy, I don't, don't feel very good in this kit, yeah. Diddly, it's not very, not pleasant during the time, again deficit model, um, okay. what you're trying, you're engineering circumstances so that you are forcing yourself to learn, to keep your mouth shut and not make excuses. So nice. if, and, and any. And any uh, when I listen to professional athletes and especially pros, because that's who we hear about, in the post-race whatever. And if, the, if one of the first things in the first sort of few minutes of them saying, if I hear things like, you know, well, I've, I've had this go on, I've been a bit sick. And they, I've like, okay, uh, I immediately so a little window to their psychology, because the really good athletes, mentally strong athletes, they don't do that. Yeah. You would never know that they were holding a, this sort of injury or this sort of fatigue. You'd never know it unless you they're intimate friends of yours. So mm. that's the place where I think that we ultimately want to get to. And you can do it. So we had a, a, a slight aside here. We had a, a runner who I'd never met a runner who was such a, a self-saboteur. And so what we started to do was we forced her to miss the start. Oh. Um, so she was a, she was a five, 5K, 10K. did a few halves, but mainly 10Ks. And so we said, okay, when a few minutes before, I want you to go into the porter. Lou, lock the door until you hear the gun go off and only Mm. then are you allowed to get out of the portaloo. So you're not spending an hour in there, you just uh, five minutes to go, you go in so you don't look like an idiot. Like what are you doing the races? Oh my God. You could have at least got a reason, right? I have my drawers down, but then you're playing catch up. Mm. Uh, And so obviously time chip to chip, right? You still get a good time, but you're not around the people who you're going head to head with. And people, she started setting PRs with this strategy. And it told me that it's a psychological issue about Mm. not about worrying about failure, because if you've got no, I don't want to swear on your podcast, but if you've got no more F's left to give, because everything's ruined anyway, you Mm. might as well X. And that's how Leslie won her first world title in in Xterra Triathlon, double flatted and a chain came off. Yeah. And after the swim, she was sort of you know she was like after sorry after the bike she was like ten minutes down uh, sorry mm-hmm. six minutes down with ten k to run all over. But she ran like an unshackled mustang in the wild. It was crazy. Yeah. Free, nothing to lose, and she ran away up to first and won it. Amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah, but it totally. took that weird set of circumstances to learn that that trick her brain was playing on her. So if we can mm-hmm. get to the point where I don't really care anymore. What's going to happen? I can mm. really run sort of unshackled from my own head. It's really powerful. And, th- and you can, like, engineer it. Okay, trapping yourself in the forcing yourself to miss the start might be an extreme example. But you can do that in other ways too.
0: See, I think I do that naturally. Like, I always start <laughs> nearer the back. And then I sort of, like, just casually start running, talking to people. And then I, I almost need that first 2K mm-hmm. to then sort of go, okay, now I'm in it and go. And mm. I don't know what. And then I know that I'm doing it. But I, because I don't want to start right at the start. I don't like really starting very fast because I think if I start really fast, how am I going to hold it? So I just sort of. I, I know. Don't know. It's, it's I think so Les- this psychological.
1: It is and Leslie. I you know I keep talking about Leslie because mm. she changed the way I looked at sports psychology. So a technique actually her dad taught her uh, when she was younger, and she's used it ever since for running events exactly like that. She she you knows she's five two tiny, she's around many in triathlon, these Amazon, these women that have been sculpted out of granite, you know, the, and she's this little thing, doesn't feel she's in nature, she's quite shy uh, by nature. And so she would, she would run, she would do her warm-up or finish her warm-up from the front row for the first like, half mile of the course. So you finish your warm-up jogging back to the, to the front line. So you had no choice but to start on the front. And she started to do that and it became such part of a routine that she was always then on the front line. And I think that if you can get, again, that's a slightly, that's not necessarily a saboteur-ish mechanism, but it is about, oh my God, I'm nervous. So an emotion-focused coping skill to deal with the nerves is to try and Numb, put away. So isn't this fun? We're at the back. We're all laughing. And yes. obviously, dopamine is, a, is an adrenaline antagonist. So this is why cracking a joke when the, when the high stress levels is the best thing that you can do. It works, right? It's a good emotion-focused coping. But ultimately, it makes you slower. <laughs> it totally <laughs> uh, does. So it's like, okay, when it, when it push comes to shove, and if, particularly if now seconds or minutes matter to you, uh, sometimes it doesn't. But if it does, you can't be doing that shit. That no, stuff no. will not help in the long run. So we have to st- find ways to re-engineer your relationship with it.
0: It's like manning up, basically. Like I, <laughs> Or womaning I, up, I should scared. say. Yes, right. yes, womaning up. It doesn't quite have the same ring. Because... <laughs>
1: no no, I know. Come on, cross a set <laughs> yeah, Come on.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I heard, I've um, listened to you and, and read, actually, in your book all about mm. the idea of comparison. And you have, you know, I love the way you take memes in your book. And you know, what about this diatribe here? And you put up mm. five of my favorite memes, and I'm like, yeah, that is rubbish, actually, isn't it? But, you know, because we're often taught that, you know, we sh- you know, comparison is the thief of joy and we-, we shouldn't compare ourselves. However, I've got to say, Simon, that one of the catalysts for me entering these events that I've entered is that I've compared myself to other runners who I feel I'm comparable to and even maybe a little bit better than. And I don't mean that with any disrespect to anyone, yeah, yeah. but I'm like, I should be on the same playing field as them. How come they can go and do those big events? How come I can't? I'm like, well, look, I actually can. And so that comparison has helped me get to the point where I've entered at least, you know? So like, can you just sort of describe what your, you know, give us an overview of that point of view.
1: Yeah. So in general, you know, the reason I I, I don't like memes that talk about don't compare yourself to others is because your brain's biology is wired to do it, whether you mm. like it or not, it will bludgeon you until you compare yourself. Mm. The human brain when faced with novel information, it asks itself two questions. The first question is, what does this mean, right? Mm-hmm. And the second question is, is this any good, right? <laughs> so there's, it, we, we, we wanna know, we wanna interpret what a, you know, meters jumped, time run is that. And then the moment we've done that, we then start to try and put ourselves in some sort of social hierarchy. Because mm-hmm. the human brain, that's the way it's wired to do. The difficulty is when that stop that comparison leaves us feeling uh, slightly depressed, uh, lower confidence, uh, guilty or shameful or whatever, some negative emotion that we don't want. And so it's finding our relationship with comparison that's, that helps us thrive, puts ourselves out the comfort zone versus shy away from. And that's the challenge uh, uh, for it. So by all means, if you, if you find that the comparison part works for you and makes you approach versus avoid, it's a great strategy to use. Mm. Unfortunately, with comparison, especially where we do it, most of us do it on, in a social media world. And, it, and if your feed is anything like ours, Instagram, it's all athletes and all, our, you get to see everyone's highlight reel uh, because we, and there's been now empirical science on how people subconsciously curate pictures of themselves and post them. You don't Mm. think, well, this one makes me look amazing. So I'm going to, okay, that's one extreme version of it. But often where you're scanning for images of yourself or things to post or things, you're you're being very selective on what you show other people because Mm. you ultimately, your brain is an impression. It wants to manage other people's impressions of you. It's called Mm. impression management. And so it's, biologically wired to compare. So when we, when we are on the receiving end of someone else's impression management, All we do is then, well, where does that put me in the ladder of, you know, attractiveness, fitness, fastness, shagability, smarts, whatever it is for you, whatever the the comparison thing is for you. And you find yourself, the more you do it, if you're looking at highlight reels of people's attractiveness, shagability, blah, 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 you're just slipping down the ladder, right? The the Mm. league table. Oh my God. And so it doesn't feel good. Uh, And so... We're not going to suddenly re-engineer how people post, or but you can know what you're looking at, and you can retrain yeah. your brain to know that what I'm seeing is not what the reality is. In fact, in in the research on Facebook, and it's only on Facebook because that's rather dated now, but that's when the science was sort of five or six mm-hmm. years ago, um, is that the more perfect it looks often the worse it actually is there's a there's an inverse correlation between that so when you look at the perfect runner with the perfect fucking family and the smart attractive children and the husband who mm. oh god he does everything you know like oh my god my family look at him you know and so <laughs> but of course they're not like that really but that's yeah. the imp- and our brain is wired to want to put us in some ladder it doesn't our frontal cortex isn't powerful enough against the part of our brain that wants us to put us in that ladder to say well hang on a minute you know mm. we, we want but intellectually we know that but it's very difficult to do that in person so we need to train ourselves to do it
0: yeah so interesting and i reckon like strava is another you know kind of uh, uh tool which with people which with, with which you can compare yourself against your mates i mean of course it's great just to see you know what your mates have done but if i'm looking through it, I'm going. Oh, Rich Roll's just done a, you know, not a mate, but, but you know, he's done a, like a ride out in like uh, California and oh, it must have been sunny back there. Oh, how come he's got 680,000 likes on that and I've got to leave him for this run? It was a PB. I As, uh, Mickey,
1: no mates just go, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I know. I know. Exactly. It's really hard. And it's even though, you know, intellectually what's happening, it doesn't make it feel any different. Um, And that's That's the
0: limbic brain, right? That's the limbic. It is, that's the
1: chimp, what we call the chimp brain, the part, it's like an avocado right in the center, the oldest part of our brain, pretty Mm. much on lockdown from Mm. being altered in a way because ultimately its goal is to keep us alive and stop us feeling humiliated, embarrassed or inadequate. So we can't hack, the brain can't let itself be hacked too easily because we could die and we could, it's not a very good survival mechanism. So it's really hard, you can do it with obviously you know, pharmacologically, but it's really hard, blunt trauma, but it's really hard to change those sorts of inbuilt sort of insecurities that we have. Mm. Um, and so actually on, a, on an aside, the science now is moving towards, so rather than, uh, and this is the, in the science of psychology and psych, uh, uh, psychotherapy. We're moving away from a control model, which is the you know the whack-a-mole. You know, as a negative thought, you whack it down, replace it with positive. I'm strong. I'm beautiful. I'm kind. I know I can. I know I can. That doesn't work. And Mm. the reason we know we can say that with not that much science is because I've never met anyone who's able to do it. Right? Everyone, we don't have as much control over our thinking and feeling as we thought. They bubble up to the surface any time. Sensations come in, and you and you you're mind runs away with itself. And so instead, this management model of saying, the goal is now to jump hand in hand with your fear. So Mm -hmm. rather than win the battle between, you know, uh, insecure, you know, worthless Simon and strong, confident, fast Simon. If I go through life thinking only until I've won that and I'm going to spend a lot of money, self help books, until I've won that fight, then I'll finally be happy. Mm. you're going to be in for a pretty miserable life. And it's probably unfeasible to expect to achieve that. Instead, it's to say, befriend your fears. Go mm-hmm. hand in. Oh, you, you know, and we, all, I always talk about the, the, the racist aunt not uh, Christmas dinner you have to put up with them they're there you kind of love them but for god's sake can you just shut your mouth ma- what are you talking <laughs> right yeah. that's the way we need to be with our fears that mm. don't worry i've got this don't worry you'll still be there when i get back i've got this and so we we need to get to that perspective or that place as athletes
0: yeah it's interesting i'm like as you're saying that i'm thinking back to december we were in Aratown mm. and there is this gravel bike pathway from Aratown to this brewery just at the Mm -hmm. about 20k down the road and in my head i'm like well that should be easy enough to to like mountain bike my way there but some of those because i'm terrible with props like i fall off i just recently had an uh, like had fallen off my mountain bike just after thinking i was commuting on gravel and i fell off i was thinking to myself oh I'm, i'm getting this and then i fall off and i'm like okay maybe not but as i was gravel biking down this like really steep incline i'm like holy heck this is like I'm super scared right now, so I had to self-talk my way through it, going, Willardyn, you've got this, you are you can do this, you can do this, knowing I wasn't actually training my brain to believe it, but I was almost blocking out those thoughts. Yeah, right you don't need time. to train
1: yourself, right, to believe it. You just need to quieten the noise. Mm, so mm. self-talk, is that's a really good example of using self-talk. Another one is singing to yourself, oh, yeah. uh, having a chorus of a song that's kind of – a bit like edgy and bitchy and fucking come on, I'm ready, you know, yeah, yeah. have a little thing in your head that you can think, because it's all running interference on mm. the part of our brain that wants to tell you, this is not good, you're not good at this, why do you bother? Why do you do something you're actually good at for once? You spend money on a coach? Oh my God, are you, like all of the, the, those weird thoughts that we mm. get. Mm. Uh, so running interference is, is a great one. So overthinking is, you know, the, 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 the kryptonite for the athlete. Uh, And so the very good athletes, uh, I mean, the the top percent of the elite athletes um, do it one of two ways. They either, there's not much to turn off, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably being polite. Um, Or they've they've learned dimmer switch skills, right? Mm -hmm. They haven't learned on and off switch because it's impossible to do uh, Mm -hmm. really. So dimmer switch skills of how do I quieten the voice? How do I turn away from the battle versus trying to, I'm busy fighting it and then I can be happy. That. Therein lies the, you know, the, the Willy Wonka's golden ticket of being a brave, mentally tough athlete.
0: No, I love it. And Simon, look, I'm mindful of your time because I don't want to take all day. But one last thing I just want sort to of mm-hmm. hear your thoughts on is going back to an earlier point about nature and exercise and how is that, you know, the real synergy of actually doing exercise in nature has a really calming effect. And if we think about the limbic brain being our old reptilian brain, and there's this idea in evolutionary biology that I've read about anyway that, that suggests there's something about nature that inherently we see it as being part of us being able to survive. Like, you know, mm. millions of years ago, like this is the environment with which we've been able to thrive and survive in as a species. And so I wonder how much of there's a connection from our limbic brain in addition, like being in nature how much that might have to do with being able to calm down that kind of chimp absolute absolutely absolutely
1: absolutely. and there's now evidence in in, in visual neuroscience mm. there's a, there's a if you want if you're interested in another podcast to listen to mm. when you're running is is fantastic um is a guy called Andrew Huberman if you haven't Huberman heard of him lab, yeah yeah the human lab at stanford is a is a visual neuroscientist and mm. doing incredible applied work about these exact concepts and I know that we're running out of time, but in a nutshell, one of the new quite remarkable findings is that when your eyes, your visual system detects you are moving through time and space. It can detect objects moving past you, and some of those objects are flora and fauna versus, mm. you know, infrastructure concrete. Quite a curious thing happens because your eyes, remember, are they're originally designed to just detect light and dark cycles. They're mm. part of brain tissue, they pop out of our skull in the mm. first trimester. So the back is a layer of cells about a width of a credit card called the neural, uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the neural re- sorry, the neural epithelial layer that's mm-hmm. around the back of it and it's indistinguishable from brain tissue. Mm. And what that does is when your eyes detect you're moving through time and space, your eyes start to move from portrait mode to landscape mm-hmm. mode. You, Instead mm-hmm. of foveating, narrowing your attention in, it starts to broaden. Your eyes start to track left to right or right to left, sideways across the horizon. And this... Finding because that and that's a, there are direct connections between how your eyes are moving, your some of the fear centers in your brain, like the amygdala and so on. When your brain detects your eyes start to go out of this foveated state and scan the horizon, you start to calm down. And when I mean calm down, blood flow to the limbic system um, mm-hmm. uh, drops, uh, cortisol drops, serotonin and dopamine go up, and so on. It's actually now EMDR therapy for PSD, uh, PTSD, training, if you might have heard of that, eye movement yeah. desensitization reprocessing, is is exactly capitalizing on that same biological mechanism to treat PTSD. And so what's happening, we think, is that when, as a from an ancestral, looking at it through an ancestral lens, is when our brains detect, I'm moving through time and space, I'm either I'm escaping or have escaped some predatory or an environment that might be fairly noxious or hostile, things are going to be okay. That's that's the sort of, mm. the, the, sort of the, you know, the simplistic version of it. But in essence, we can leverage that now because the studies, there's a couple of randomized control trials that have looked at exercise, fMRI imaging of the brain, mm-hmm. like we've mentioned inside in nature, uh, uh, outside in urban environments, and then inside. You find quite remarkable differences on how what happens to our visual system and all the measures that we have of anxiety and nervousness and rumination and worry they seem to drop when you're outside something special about outside exercise so Mm. pelotoning or treadmilling great exercise fantastic not don't want to knock them but you're still foveating. You're focusing on a screen, you're looking down. And that doesn't, that may explain why outdoor exercise seems to be so beneficial to our health. And that date, that finding dates back to the fifties where people had hospital beds with a window, had better clinical outcomes. They live longer, had better complications than people had no windows. Something about seeing outdoors. And of course, you know, there couldn't be more polar opposites than New Zealand and Southern California, right? In terms of their built environment. So you have the luxury of having lots of green space to exercise in, but many people around there don't. They only can go out in environments. So I'm saying, if you can't do anything about being in nature, there's no parks. Or at least try and do some horizon scanning as you're doing it. Don't go out walking around the block or getting an exercise break looking at your phone, mm. or even to a sense extent looking at you know a dog that you're walking. With. Try and let your gaze spread the, spread to the horizon. It seems to have sort of what we call an anxiolytic effect. It reduces our sense of sort of anxiety or worry or rumination.
0: No, that's awesome. And you know, notwithstanding the fact that Andrew Huberman has said that we shouldn't have caffeine as soon as we wake up <laughs> in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yet to actually look, don't that's want to look right. at the science.
1: Well, He's probably wrong on that oh, one. I, I mean, that's on that. that's, yeah. I if we can be selective <laughs> on which science we want to accept.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Look at um, you. I look at the ringtone. Oh, yeah. well, that's, that's a little window to your inner.
0: <laughs> Bogan. <laughs> I know. I know. Um It was bad podcasting, wasn't it? Um, uh. But notwithstanding that he's. Brilliant with with I've listened to a number of his podcasts, yeah. so I agree with you your sentiment on on him. um Whilst there is opportunity to get outdoors, not everyone takes it. You know, Simon, like I, you know, most like New Zealand is not that different from anywhere else in the world. You know, we're sort of we're we're sort of sold as this clean, green, outdoorsy type population, but you know, most of us really do like go from building to building mm-hmm. to building. We exercise mm-hmm. inside if we exercise at all, and of course. Over the last year, has seen you know we've had real restrictions placed on our ability to mm-hmm. go outside as well. So, any final thoughts on I suppose the impact that COVID or something else like that might have had on our endurance community? Like, do you have any insights there?
1: Yeah, what's interesting is though when you look at the Strava, you know Strava do the end of year report um, mm. each year of all of the seventy five billion whatever uh, users, and they found that. Endurance, because it's mainly endurance exercises that are on Strava, in pretty much all classes of exercise from hiking to, you know, competitive running to, you know, big, audacious, everesting, you know, all these challenges that you get on these, they all have gone through the roof. So people are doing mm-hmm. two to three times more than they've ever done. Wow. When you start to dig into the, under COVID, so that's, that's good, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, when you start to dig into the data, you see that when you time the, their type of exercise they do with their lockdowns in their country, they, it follows the, a very, very consistent pattern. So in other words, uh, people, exercisers will, will want to get their exercise in no matter what. They will find, you know, just like, you know, the water will always find the crack, the, we, we athletes do that as well mm. so we'll, we'll go inside we'll do that but as the moment we are permitted or allowed to be outside people do in droves mm. and so I think this is our brains know this intuitively better than we do frontal mm. Uh so we just have to follow that a little bit more I think and say look exercise outdoors is is not just good for our training, but it's actually good for our mental health. It's better for our mental health. And all exercise, I don't want the message be only exercise out. If you can't exercise Mm. outdoors, don't bother. All exercise is going to help your health pretty much, but outdoor exercise is special. Mm. And exercise in nature outdoors is even specialer, right? Mm. So try and do that whenever you can for your mental health and the therapeutic benefits of it outside of TSS scores and FTPs and train all the metrics we have of, you know, being faster and quicker.
0: Mm, no, I love that. And I, I, you know, I think I feel really privileged to have discovered that I enjoy running from a, you know, in my teenage years. And it's something that I've really kept and is, is part, absolutely part of my identity. Mm. And I feel really privileged that I've got that. And because there are so many people, I think, who haven't found the thing which brings them so much joy, you know. and. Yep. And speaking to people like you who are in that same space, even though a different sport, mm-hmm. you know, there's a real sort of camaraderie as well around yeah. the, you know, sport and whatnot. Simon, this has been great speaking to you. I had like four or five pages of notes and then <laughs> got on the call going, gosh, have I got enough? And like got through like a page of them. So, um, but I really appreciate your time. Uh, your, you've got your exterior podcast. Are you still updating that?
1: We haven't done it. We, uh, yeah, we did the first season because Xterra own it and Leslie and I host it. We haven't mm. done it uh, after March. We might pick it up again. Uh, we yeah, can yeah. if we wish, but I think that you know other things get in the in the way. Uh, but you know, but yeah, uh, we, we we love like you. We're, we have a high. We're highly intellectually curious. We love talking about ideas and concepts that can make our lives better and others. And so you know, it's it's all it's all good.
0: That's awesome. And I'll include, uh, obviously, links as to how people can connect with you and Leslie and um, Braveheart Coaching and whatnot. So um, thank you, Simon. This has been great. Enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Thanks so much, Mick. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm a big fan of your podcast too. And uh, so hopefully we'll see each other in the flesh sometime.
0: Yes. Alrighty team, hopefully you enjoyed that and you can see that he is, you know, just the the manner with which he talks about all things psychology, that's exactly how it comes across in the book as well. And it is so worth a read. I learned so much and it has really helped me understand my own mind a little bit better and, and also has definitely formed a large part of my preparation for the upcoming ultras that I have. Next week, We get to talk to Jeff Rothschild, music producer turned PhD student. He is studying under Dan Pluse and Andrew Kilding, all looking at uh, how we fuel ourselves for our training and how it impacts on our ability to perform and uh, fuel utilisation. So it's definitely one for you science geeks uh, or music geeks, given his previous life as a music producer of which we do spend a bit of time talking about um until then though you can catch me over on facebook at mickey willidan nutrition over on instagram and twitter at mickey willidan or over on my website where you can hook into one of my programs monday's matter red joe's open until the sunday also got my athlete plan my real food nutrition plan and also recipe access. So that's $12 a month for access to all of my recipes, my online platform for you to create your own meal plan and to get any advice that you need from me through my online messaging system. And you can also sign up to my weekly email where I just share information of what I'm reading, what I'm listening to and also just some super practical tips. Until next week, guys, you have a fab week and catch you then.